From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I said I support my police, but they can't be abusive. Because remember, I was arrested at 15, beat by police officers, and instead of saying, woe is me, I said, why not me? That's Eric Adams. He's the mayor of New York City. When Adams took office in January, he became the city's second black mayor and the first former police officer to lead the city since 1950. Both in his campaign and his first 100 days in office, Adams has focused on crime and public safety. He's also become a cheerleader for revitalizing the city's economy, including its nightlife, in the wake of the pandemic. He's been known for hitting the city's hotspots, saying, when a mayor has swagger, the city has swagger. Adams' playbook has Democrats around the country taking notice. I sat down with Mayor Adams live on stage at Cooper Union in New York City on Tuesday evening. We had a wide-ranging conversation about his leadership style, why he believes this is an FDR moment, his plans for addressing homelessness, and even whether he might run for president. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS, we are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen. Hey folks, it's official. Stay Tuned won a Webby Award for Best Individual Podcast Episode in the News and Politics category. The episode features my conversation with the prosecutors who convicted former police officer Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. We reflect on the trial, its immense impact on our country, and the meaning of justice in a case like this one. I want to take a moment to say thank you to all of those who voted and who tune in every week and to the Extraordinary Cafe team. We couldn't do this work without you. And if you haven't heard the episode, it's called The Chauvin Prosecutors, and you can find it by searching in your podcast app. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from Turd Ferguson, who asks, how does the process and vetting differ for SCOTUS versus Chief Justice SCOTUS? Meaning, I guess, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court versus the Chief. Is it just a timing thing, death slash retirement, or is it more calculated and strategic? I.e., is there someone who would, wouldn't be chosen for Chief who might be otherwise nominated for a seat? So that's a really interesting question. I don't think there's really a difference. It comes up very, very infrequently. There's a chief opening, you know, every few decades, it seems. And in modern times, we've only had two chief justices of the Supreme Court in the last 36 years. 
a little bit of history on the point. One thing to remember is every president, when there's a vacancy at the chief justice level of the Supreme Court, has two options. You can either appoint someone from outside of the Supreme Court, or you can choose to nominate someone who's an associate justice for promotion to the chief justice spot, and then you get a chance to nominate yet another person to the spot that was vacated by the person who's nominated to be the chief justice. That's in fact what happened with Chief Justice Rehnquist. He was appointed to the court by Nixon in 1971, served as an associate justice for a number of years, and then in 1986, when Warren Burger left the court, the president at the time, Ronald Reagan, had a choice to promote someone from within or appoint someone from without, and he chose to nominate William Rehnquist to be the chief justice. Now, that's not a promotion that happens internally just by fiat. Rehnquist had to go through a second confirmation hearing before the Senate and get voted on by the Senate, and he became the chief justice, and then his vacant spot was filled by none other than Antonin Scalia. Now, fast forward to 2005, when I was in fact working on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and Sandra Day O'Connor retired, and President Bush nominated John Roberts to be an associate justice of the Supreme Court to fill the O'Connor seat. On the very eve of the confirmation hearings, in the first week of September in 2005, Justice Rehnquist suddenly passed away over the weekend. The Senate Republicans adjourned the hearings for John Roberts for a week. During that time, President Bush withdrew the nomination of John Roberts to be an associate Supreme Court justice and renominated him to fill the chief justice spot. So that's an example of someone who was considered for an associate justice spot. And when the chief justice spot opened up on the eve of the confirmation hearing, was renominated for the top position. And then, of course, as you know, ultimately, Sam Alito was nominated for the spot vacated by Sandra Day O'Connor. So I think it's the case that when there's a chief justice vacancy, a president will choose the person who he or she thinks is the best for the job, aligned with the ideology of the administration. And it doesn't matter whether it's a chief justice spot or an associate justice spot. But that's at least what I think is true in recent history. This question comes in a tweet from Carrie, who asks, will you stay on Twitter under new ownership? So this is a question that is occupying the thoughts of social media mavens who are on Twitter a lot, and it comes obviously on the heels of the news that Elon Musk seems to have been successful in making an offer of 40-something billion dollars to buy Twitter outright. And there's a lot of debate and there's a lot of drama. I don't know what's going to happen to the website. I write and speak often about Twitter being a good thing sometimes and a bad thing other times. Probably for me, it's been more good than bad, but I, I appreciate how terrible it's become, how it can be a cesspool of hatred and animosity and disinformation. But there's also good things. I've developed relationships on Twitter. I can get my message out on Twitter. People who didn't have voices can have their voice heard on Twitter. I tweeted a couple of days ago in answer to your question, Carrie, that I intend to remain on Twitter, at least for the time being. I still think it's a decent platform for lots of good things. And if all the good people who are trying to be honest and true and reasonable flee the website, I think that makes the disinformation problem even worse. Someone tweeted just this morning, Molly Jong Fast, something that I think makes a lot of sense. She says, I don't understand liberals leaving Twitter because they're mad about Elon Musk. For now, and this might not always be true forever, but for now, this is the public square. Why seed it? I think that's a little bit true. Now, something weird has been going on on Twitter. Liberals and Democrats and progressives have been losing Twitter followers over the last couple of days. Conservatives and Republicans have been gaining. I've lost myself, I think, like 10,000 or 11,000 Twitter followers. Not clear whether that's a function of people who are on the progressive side of things 
are quitting the, the app, or if it's a sweep of bots. And on the Republican side, whether it's people who are rejoining the site after being upset about President Trump being kicked off the site, there's a question about whether or not former President Trump will be invited back on the site when Elon Musk is in control. You know, I don't know what's going to happen with the site, but for now, I'm staying put. As I said in recent weeks, I thought from time to time I would answer a basic question about the law, specifically criminal law, because we assume knowledge on the part of people that maybe we shouldn't assume. So here's a question that comes up from time to time, and it's this. Why do we have a bail system if a guiding principle of the criminal justice system is that one is innocent until proven guilty? Now, that's a very interesting question, and you have to think about it for a minute. Obviously, the, the presumption of innocence is central to our criminal justice system and is a way in which people can be protected if they're charged with a crime. And generally what that means is you're not sentenced to any term of imprisonment, so you're a free person in the United States of America. However, there are circumstances in which people are taken into custody pending trial. And it's a fraught moment. Whenever there's an arraignment or a presentment on a criminal charge in federal court, I'm speaking only of federal court because I know the state court systems in various places are controversial and the bail system operates differently in different states. So I'm going to speak just about the federal system. But when you're first presented on a criminal complaint or a criminal indictment, one of the most important questions the judge asks is what is the government's position? What is the prosecution's position on remand? Meaning, does the government think that the defendant who has just been charged needs to be held pending trial? And there can be two reasons to make that argument. And they have nothing to do really with guilt or innocence. They have to do with two things. One, risk of flight, and two, dangerousness to the community. So for example, if you have been charged and there's a decent amount of evidence that the judge finds to be the case with shooting people, doing harm, committing a rape, engaging in an act of terror, the argument that the government will make and that the judge might agree with is that you are a danger to the community until the trial is resolved, at which point either you'll be acquitted and you can go free because that's how our system works, or you'll be sentenced to some further term of imprisonment and the time before conviction that you've served in prison counts towards that ultimate sentence. The second reason, as I mentioned, is risk of flight. If you can show that someone has a history of ignoring bench warrants, if you can show that someone has a lot of means, has multiple passports, if there's some other evidentiary basis to believe that this person is likely not to appear for trial or for further court appearances, you make an argument to the court that this person, if not remanded to the custody of the government, will flee and you won't get justice ultimately. Now, the interesting thing about arguments relating to risk of flight, notwithstanding the presumption of innocence, is sometimes the government will make an argument about the strength of the case, the strength of the evidence, and the likelihood that the person is guilty, even though there hasn't been a trial yet. And prosecutors will argue, and sometimes this argument works and sometimes it doesn't, that one of the reasons you're concerned about risk of flight is it's a serious charge, there's overwhelming evidence, the defendant knows and appreciates there's overwhelming evidence, understands that the likelihood of conviction is very high and the sentence will probably be fairly long and that's an incentive to flee the jurisdiction. So in answer to the question, in summary, though there's a presumption of innocence, there are circumstances in which the system permits the taking into custody of somebody before guilt has been proven. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. 
Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then passed those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Eric Adams has been a public servant for four decades. He was an officer in the New York City Police Department for more than 20 years, retiring with the rank as captain. He went on to become a New York State Senator and the Brooklyn Borough President. In January, he became the 110th mayor of New York City. It's great to be here. Um, I want to get something on the record right off the bat. I'm uh, the, the former U.S. attorney, and I think it should just be clear that this is a non-custodial interview, <laughs> and you, I will not be Mirandizing you. So you had a big day. Every, every day in New York is a, is a big right, day. Right, but today, <laughs> you gave a big speech today mm. on the state of the city, and I half thought you were gonna say, the state of the city is full of swagger. <laughs> did you think about saying that? Uh, uh, yes, I did, and uh, we are full of swagger. Uh, New York is a unique place, and it's all about, uh, people often talk about our buildings, our structure, our brick and mortar, uh, but that is not our secret. Our secret I borrow from the uh, phrase from Snapple Soft Drink, we are who we are because we're made up of the best stuff on earth <laughs> we're New Yorkers. <laughs> <laughs> Snapple had nothing to do with that endorsement. <laughs> Just want to make that clear. So, President Sparks uh, stepped on a line of mine because um, I was going to talk about some of the things you said in the speech, and it's a way to talk about your vision for the city, what happened in the first 100 days, how you envision the next number of, uh, number of thousands of days. And you talked about New York in a particular way, and as she pointed out, you said there are two types of people in this world, um, New Yorkers, and those who wish they lived here, but then you, you began the speech by saying, I feel sorry for the people who live in small towns and not New York City. <laughs> That's great for this crowd here. I have, I have many listeners who live in small towns. <laughs> Can you explain to them why those statements are accurate statements of law? Well, you know, <laughs> I've crisscrossed uh, not only the country, but the globe. And what many people don't understand that when you are in a small location, it's like being in a garden with one flower. 
the beauty of the cross-pollination of ideas, of culture, of music and sound, you can walk into a Chinese restaurant, have a Russian cook from a menu that he learns from his Mexican girlfriend that grew up in the South Bronx, you know? The diversity- Is that a hypothetical? Or? <laughs> that's the reality. And so our diversity, um, when you move through the city and if you allow yourself not to be isolated in one different area, there's something that you come away from. And many of the monolithic small towns, uh, they don't have that same benefit that we have here. Every block is a small town in New York City. Yeah. Larger than a small town. That's right. <laughs> you have nothing against small towns. No, I love them. And, and John know? Cougar Mellencamp is fine by you. That's right. All right. You, so we have been through a lot, yes. as you pointed out in your speech and on the campaign trail, and as everyone here knows, COVID, inflation, um, unemployment, which is getting better. And you said something interesting that I want to ask you about. You, you have said on the 100th day, we're a little bit past that now, but you said on the 100th day, this is an FDR moment. And I think you mentioned FDR in your speech today as well. What are the kinds of things, that's a big thing to say, what are the kinds of FDR level programs like Social Security and things of that nature that you think we need, that you think you can get accomplished for the city of New York? And then compound question, is it an FDR moment just for you in New York City or is it also an FDR moment for the president, for governors around the country and for mayors of other cities? I love that question, I love that question. Uh, something, uh, when I was in South Africa, I heard uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu say a quote that I live by. Uh, we spend a lifetime pulling people out of the river. No one goes upstream and prevent them from falling in in the first place. Our country is built on a system of a downstream mindset. All we do is wait downstream. It's almost dysfunctional. We wait to have people fall in the river of foster care. We wait for children who are dyslexic like I am to fall in the river. 30% of our prison population, uh, they are dyslexic. We wait for people to fall in the river of mental health illness. 48% of our prisons at Rikers Island, mental health illnesses. Healthcare, we wait for people to have chronic diseases instead of having preventive medicine in a real way. And so this is a real moment for all of us. Uh, I just believe that we are at a different place in our existence as human beings because man's have gone, men have gone through evolution. Men and women have gone through evolution. We've gone from uh, the Neanderthal to another level, to another level, to another level. They didn't know at the time they were going through that level that they're about to transform. We don't realize we're about to universally transform how we exist as human beings. And so this FDR moment means that we better get ready for what we expect in life, and it's not what we expected previously. I think that's great. But is there a particular program? Childcare. We were able to successfully get the resources we need for childcare. That has held back women in poorer communities for years. They were paying $55 a week for childcare. Because of our success, it's down to $10 a week. We're going to do dyslexia screening in all of our schools. That's unimaginable when you think about it, when 30% of the prison population are dyslexic. We're going to go into a healthcare system. You know, as you know, I had type two diabetes, lost my sight. Uh, doctors said I would be blind in a year. I was going to lose some fingers and toes. 
Uh, they stated that, uh, you know, I was basically going to be on insulin the rest of my life. We invested in lifestyle medicine, plant-based diet, Dr. McMacken. We started reversing chronic diseases like my chronic disease was reversed. We're now going to expand that citywide. So what you're seeing my administration is doing, we're taking New York City upstream, and this is an FDR moment because we're going to change how life is in New York. So, so with all the difficulties with the economy, and I imagine you touted the budget and your success in balancing the budget this uh, year in the speech, how do you do these big FDR moment types of things in the current economy? By running our cities more efficiently. Remember, we, this is one of the first times that we witnessed the budget decrease it. You know, the projected budget was over $100 billion. We went down to uh, $99.7 billion. And we are calling, calling on the agencies to produce a better product. We've gotten so used to having a product that is not really representative of what we're paying taxpayers. How do you spend $38 billion educating children, and every year 65% of black and brown children never reach proficiency? That's just unimaginable. And so instead of just thinking you spend more, how about doing more? And we could do more, and we could do better. I want to talk about public safety. It was a cornerstone of your campaign. You and I both have significant law enforcement backgrounds. Could, could you remind me who the police commissioner is? <laughs> you know, uh, I have an amazing police commissioner, the first African-American Latina to be police commissioner in the history of New York City. Uh, it is uh, Police Commissioner Sewell, and she's just amazing. The reason I ask is um, I thought the police commissioner was you. Okay. <laughs> how, and, but what I mean by that is, how much attention do you pay to the police department? How much are you managing the police department? How independent is the police commissioner from the mayor? Oh, listen, she, she was, if you know Commissioner Sewell, you should have her on one day. She's not going to let will. you run. she come? Yes, she would. Okay. She's not going to let you run her. She is one tough tough cookie right. <laughs> you know that but but here's the, here's the here's the important thing i'm the leader of the city and generals should lead from the front they shouldn't lead from the rear i'm not going to send my commissioners my deputy mayors into battle and say how was the war i'm going to lead them into the war and fight the battle traditionally the mayors had to turn over police departments and the thinking around public safety to the police commissioners and take a step back. Well, Rudy Giuliani was not a cop. He was a U.S. attorney, but that's a totally different thing. <laughs> yes, it is. You we know, won't and, talk about that. and in the Southern District where you he, came out. He was. <laughs> he was. And so um, it is imperative. The partnership we have developed is to really bounce ideas off each other. And she is a person that does not come with an ego. She's about how do I make the city safe? That is her only focus. And she's doing an amazing job in accomplishing that. And we're going to turn around this crime. So a lot of bad things have happened with respect to crime in the city since you've been mayor. In your third week, two young police officers were shot to death. One of the saddest things you can see. Just a couple of weeks ago, there was a subway shooter who brought to mind awful terrorist attacks. The crime statistics are not good. The crime has gone up. <clears throat> There's a, a flurry of hate crimes happening in the Jewish community, in the Asian community, uh, and, and in, the, in the trans community. 
uh, not just here but around the, the country. I guess my first question about that is, what matters is not just whether crime is increasing but the perception of whether crime is increasing. What do you think the perception is of New Yorkers about that and does it match reality? Yes. When you see the increase in crime, uh, those are real numbers. We have to fight two things. We have to fight the perception, because yeah. perception is reality, and then we have to fight the actual numbers of those who are victims of the crime. And, and do you think those are aligned, or are there people who are underestimating crime or overestimating crime in the city at the moment? No, I think it's a combination. Let's, let's, you get up in the morning, you read the paper, and you hear about someone was hit in the head with a hammer while they entered the subway station. Then you enter the station and you see encampments, you see disorderly conduct, you see yelling and screaming, you see dirt and trash. Now what you read turns into your reality. Even if you're not a victim of a crime, you are saying, I see a state of disorder. So that's why we have to deal with the actual crime and we have to deal with those who are seeing conditions that lead to you feeling unsafe. That's why we went into removing the encampments on our subway system. So I think that's a great point. For you as a mayor and for your police commissioner, is the way to attack the problem of actual crime and perception of crime to go after actual crime? Or are there things that you can do that are different to make people feel more comfortable in their perception? Do you know what I mean? Combination. Uh, I use the term intervention, prevention. Prevention, those are the long-term things we're, we're going to do. But intervention, those are the things we need to do right now. What does that look like? We should not have people sleeping on our subway system. That's an indictment on us. There's nothing dignified by living in that, those conditions. So we must remove the encampments off our subway system. But are those people engaging in crime, or is that a different problem of homelessness and people who are unhoused? Well, that's one of the questions we should ask the Go family. It was a homeless person with mental yeah. health illnesses that pushed her to the subway tracks. And the countless number of crimes that's being attached to people with mental health illnesses that no one is giving them proactively the services they deserve. And so I'm not going to wait until a misgoal is pushed to the tracks. I'm going to give people proactive support that they deserve. And when we started this initiative of dealing with those who are dealing with mental health issues, only 22 people in the first week responded to our call. Now we have 700 people because we built trust. What do you say to folks who criticize you and say, Really what Mayor Adams has done is to get those people who are without homes out of sight rather than get them help. I think it's to the contrary. I think they should do what Norman Siegel is doing. Norman Siegel is putting together a volunteer group of a hundred different New Yorkers that are willing to go in the street and speak with people. Before I started this initiative, I spent weeks going inside encampments, talking to people who were living in encampments. I saw human waste in the corner. When you went... I saw people using drug paraphernalia. What'd they say to you? What'd they say that they wanted? What did they say their lives were like? They say they're afraid to go into shelters. They'd rather live on the street. And are, are they right to be afraid to go into shelters? No, they're not right. So what did I do? I told my, told my team, let's create... There, some people didn't agree with that. And that's so... Listen, New York, 8.8 .8 million people, 30 million opinions, but one mayor, that's going to make the decision. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So what did, what did I do? I told my team, after hearing from those people, I said, let's make brochures and show them what they're moving into. 
And we went out with brochures, and they looked at them, and they saw the conditions. That's why we went from 22 to 700. Were those brochures, because I've seen brochures of hotels that I've then gone to, and there's a little bit of a disconnect. Oh, without a doubt. But people were holding on to the conditions of what they thought the shelters were. And no one is going to tell me that living on the street in a tent with no bathrooms, no showers, no meals, no access to health care, no access to mental health care. No one is going to convince me that that is more dignified than going inside someplace where we have three meals, access to health care, access to shower, access to a caseworker. I am not going to accept that as a city we can pass by people that's living on the streets. I'm not going to do that, and that's not going to happen in my administration. Going back to your speech and some of the issues, because you spent some time on public safety, as I think was appropriate, you said something very simple that I think is non-controversial, and you said it twice, and it's interesting to me that in this day and age you had to say it. And you said, I will support my police. And I think you said it twice. Can you, can you describe why it is necessary to say that and why that's a little bit, in 2022, a bold statement to make. And, and why are there people, in your view, and on your analysis, who need to be told that the police should be supported? Well, first of all, I said two things. Yeah. And they went together. I know, you did. I said, I support my police, but they can't be abusive. Yeah. Because remember, I was arrested at 15, beat by police officers. And instead of saying, woe is me, I said, why not me? Reverend Herbert Daughtry and civil rights leaders told me to go into the police department. I became a cop. And I saw the importance of public safety and justice. And so when I tell New Yorkers, support your police, I tell police officers, you won't be abusive in my police department and serve in my police department and our police department. So that's the balance that we are talking about. But we need to support our police. Listen, I'm not going to send police officers on the front line and tell them to go after guns. We took 2,500 illegal guns off the streets since I've been the mayor. Think about that. Is that a lot of guns compared to how many guns there are on the street? <laughs> Let me tell you something. How many guns? Do you know, I don't know the answer. Too many. And, and yeah. here's the real yeah. fear. Here's the real fear. Not only did we take off 2,500, when I spoke with uh, Mayor Lightfoot, who took off 18,000 off the streets of Chicago, Chicago last Mayor, year. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, the, the mayor of Chicago. Here's the real fear. Supreme Court is about to rule on open carry. Yeah, it's not going to be good. That is, I don't know if Americans realize and New Yorkers realize what that means for us. Yeah. Second, ghost guns. You have some nut that can sit inside his own house and make a gun. No serial number. So if we don't get away from the fixation of guns in our society, we're going to have a major impact on public safety. <clears throat> but can I ask you a question about guns? And I'm 100% with you. And when I was U.S. attorney, we focused on gun crimes and recidivism among uh, people who used guns for violent crimes and possessed guns if they had been felons. But how uphill a battle is it in the city of New York, no matter how much you crack down, when all these other states have much more lax laws? I mean, how futile is the exercise? Well, one thing is extremely disappointing for me 
is that President Biden was really the first president to start having a real conversation about what we're going to do about guns. Uh, other presidents passed over it. So 9-11 happens. What do we do as a country? We stated never again will we allow the lack of information sharing to have someone come on our soil and take thousands of lives. We have not done that with gun violence. Every day we're having countless number of innocent people losing their lives uh, in, our, in our cities across America. This is not only New York. Right, but there are parts of America where you can go to a gun show and there are all these loopholes, not just ghost guns, but other things, and it's really easy to bring them into the city over the, over the bridge or through the tunnel. Are, are you thinking about engaging in national action and advocacy to protect New York, not just doing things in New York? We have to. And, and let's be honest. When you look at the legislation that has been passed on a national level in Washington, it has been passed because of assault rifles, because of school shootings, which is important for us to have done that. But you don't see that same urgency. The problem in America is the handgun. But who's the victim of handguns? Black, brown, and poor. There's never been an urgent move towards addressing the handgun crisis. We need to have a real ATF leader, as the president has nominated. We need to double up on ATF. We only have 24 ATF agents in the country, 80 in New York. We need to do information sharing to identify those gun dealers that are placing guns in the city through illegal means. And we need to really deal with gun trafficking. We were successful in the state and have them drop down the numbers for gun trafficking. So there must be a national movement. And my mayors across the country, they hear what I'm saying, and we're going to rally together to address it. Is, is broken windows policing good in your view, and is it back? It's, it's, it's bad when it's abused. And I don't believe in the concept of broken window policing. You know, when we talked but about- you, you do believe in the concept of, and I, I guess it depends on what label you give it, in quality of life improvement. Yes, and here's what it, here's yeah. what it looks like. Here's what it looks like. Ms. Jones is waiting in, on, on the store, getting ready to take her hard-earned money and buy uh, some shampoo. Some other character comes in with a, with a bag and decides he's going to steal everything off the shelf and walk out without paying. No. It costs money. <laughs> you know? Because if Dwayne Reed says to me, I'm closing down my stores here because every day someone is coming in, stealing whatever they want and walk out, then you know what happens? That low-wage clerk is no longer employed. That person that's stocking the shelves is no longer employed. So I'm not criminalizing anyone by saying you cannot do whatever you want in this city and disrespect other people. I'm saying it's a standard of expected behavior in our city and we don't have to be heavy handed as policing to get there. We've eroded the basic duties of being a citizen. We should have never legalized um, public urination. What were we thinking about? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's optionality, I guess. <laughs> as they say on the Harvard Business Review. In the same, in the same, listen. See, well, look, gotta... do, you, do you think, what do you think about certain prosecutors in the city uh, who some time ago, you know, former prosecutor in the city, who said we were not going to prosecute people for turnstile jumping? Listen, uh, I believe, I think it was wrong. That decision was wrong. Yes, it was. Yep. Because number one, we input into our budget 
an increase in reduced fare metro card permit, permanent, it's baseline. Also, if a person comes to the train and they can't pay their fare, do you know there's a process you can go to so they can get on for free? There's a process. Is that in a brochure? <laughs> get the information out. I have no out. idea. Get the information out. But the, but the, the, thing, the, thing, is, the thing is that you cannot have, a, a city as diverse as New York yeah. must run on systems and respect for the rules of being in the city. You can't have a city where someone is deciding, I'm just not gonna pay. I'm just gonna walk on the bus. I'm just gonna carry a gun. I'm just gonna take whatever I've ever want out of stores. So, so do you get on the phone with DAs and say, you need to rethink this? Well, listen, we sit down every week and we have some amazing DAs from Bragg to uh, Eric Gonzalez to Melinda Katz uh, uh, to uh, Bronx DA. We meet. You didn't mention the Staten Island DA. No. And Staten Island also <laughs> as well. You mentioned four of the five. <laughs> Staten Island is not the forgotten borough with me. I spent a lot of time out there. Just the forgotten DA. But we, <laughs> we sit down, we, we, we sit down and, and we talk often. And there are areas where we agree and areas where we disagree. And that's okay. You know, we, I don't know why we believe we must agree with, your, with each other all the time. I, like I said, I don't agree with myself all the time. You know, so it's about how do we sit down and talk? How do we come to a middle ground? And there's some policies that they have implemented that I just don't agree on. And I'm sure there's things that I do that they don't agree on. Yeah. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Eric Adams after this. So you said something that I think was really significant in the speech today on public safety and it was just a line, a couple lines, but I think it says a lot, and I don't know what it quite means. Um, and I think it's important in this debate about what the police should be responsible for, whether we rely on the police for all sorts of things, they're not quite in their wheelhouse. And you said not every, something like, I took my own notes, <laughs> I didn't have a transcript. Not every 911 call needs a police response. Right, right. That's a big deal thing to say. What does that mean in real life? So what we are doing now is that we are doing an analysis of all of our 911 calls. And we're saying, what are we calling police for? We have been indoctrinated with the belief that anything that happens, immediately pick up the phone and call the police. There are some calls for mental health uh, illnesses that you don't need the police. Uh, there are calls for past crimes. You don't need the police. And so instead of using police to do the job of dealing with real violent incidents, we should be using other entities, like we're investing in, to use uh, services and service providers that's not police related. We have to wean ourselves yeah. off of so, so what are some examples of things that it shouldn't be the, that shouldn't be the police's job? Someone calls and say, um, you know, my, my mother's feeling depressed. You don't need a police to do that. <laughs> you know, get a mental health professional over there. Sometimes the mere presence of a police uniform can aggravate the situation. Yeah, escalates it. Exactly. Yeah. It makes it even worse. And so it's about using what is being done in other municipalities of really weaning the public off of believing police is and, the only response. And when you say a thing like that, are the police with you? I believe they are. Right? They don't want to do those things. No, they do not. And what They're, about members of the public 
who are critical of the police, are they also with you on yes, that? Yes, they are. So I who's think against this? 8.8 million people. <laughs> you know? is, is it just because it's just easy to have, you know, I guess we have 311 in New York also, but is it just, is it just easier to have the police do everything? And yeah, it's, and it's something else that I realized in the city. Trump did something to us. You know that? Oh, I'm sorry, and I who? said Trump. Donald Trump. Trump. I was hoping he wasn't going to come up in this conversation. No, he, but he did. And I said it when he was in office. You know, I said, I'm no longer concerned about him. We, we're going to vote him out. I'm concerned about what we've become. People can't even go to Thanksgiving dinners anymore. We've become so combative. We, we're no longer deep listeners. We don't seek to understand so we can be understood. We wait for you to finish the sentence so we can tell you how wrong we are. People find creative ways just to disagree with you. People beat me up. I'm a, I'm a plant-based eater that was able to reverse my healthcare uh, crises and my blindness and my, my nerve damage. They say, yeah, but we think we saw you eat a piece of fish. So what? <laughs> so what? <laughs> Well, you know what? I wasn't, I wasn't going to bring up Vegan Gate, but in, but in fact, you know, it's not that they saw you eat a piece of fish. It's that you had your press person say flatly that the mayor doesn't eat meat or fish, and he's a vegan. And I, you look great, by the way. I want to, I want to, I want to. Whatever diet you have, whether it's you know, 99% vegan or 90% vegan, I, I'm, I'm in. But in fairness. I think the issue is a little bit different from how you describe it. I don't think it was. I think that we're in the I gotcha. We're in the I got you. We need to keep the main thing the main thing. And my press person is not running around with me all the time. And so he's going to say what he wants to say. But listen, but the, the bottom line is, why have we become a place of I gotcha instead of a place I got you? I got you. <laughs> That's the, that's the place we need to be. Instead of focusing on, hey, you know, this guy reversed his blindness. Blind, diabetes is the number one cause of blindness in America. Number one cause of non-trauma limb amputation, limb amputation, amputation in America. So why not say, let's look what this guy is doing. Because when I walk down the block, people are not saying, hey, you know, did you have a red snapper? No. <laughs> They're saying, Tell me the diet you on, because I'm getting ready to lose my sight. That's what it's about. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. And uh, let me tell you this. Let me tell you this. This is the you most. You have more to say. This is the most important thing to know about me. I'm perfectly imperfect. Yeah. Perfectly imperfect. I've heard you. I've, so and. And so are the people who are clapping. <laughs> COVID. It is important to you, and I think to a lot of folks, that people come back to New York. Yes. Uh, for the vibrancy of the city, but even more importantly, perhaps, for the tax base. People have gotten used to not doing the commute. They're right. not coming back, not just you know every day, but no days for some folks. <laughs> How are you going to get people to think differently about that and go back to the way it was? Different. That's a huge challenge, and so I don't envy you in that challenge. How are you going to do that? No, and great question. And here's different levels. 
And one level is the most interesting level. Uh, my son's generation, they are the most socially conscious generation I ever met. My son would not have a cup of coffee unless he knows the beans were picked by those who were paid a fair wage and which, which country it came from. I mean, it's unbelievable how his generation is just, people must be treated fairly. And so I sat down and I said, Jordan, think about it. You can stay home. But if you stay home, then that person who works in the cleaners that normally cleans your suit is not getting paid. That person who's the dishwasher in a restaurant at a low wage or, or a, a cook or a waiter, they're not getting paid. So by you staying home, yes, you can stay home. But the financial ecosystem says you must be back out there so that business travelers, travelers, which is 70% of our hotel occupancy, yeah. with HTC employees, the maid, the matrix, they all get paid. So when you say that, I find that very compelling. What's the response? He said, Dad, never thought about it that way. <laughs> <laughs> and did he change his mind? Yes. Or are you working on it? It's nope, an ongoing nope. He's back out. He's back out. And that's the message we have to get out to people, that the, our financial ecosystem depends on all of us being engaged. And not only that, but look at the numbers. We're seeing uh, uh, the social determinants of, determinants of health is talking about loneliness. England has a loneliness czar. You know, living it home. It does? Yes, yes. Loneliness is going to become a major crisis. We have an increase in suicide, increase in young people um, thinking about attempted suicide. We can't live alone. Do we, do we have <laughs> enough money in the budget to address mental health in the way we need to? You never have enough to deal yeah. with mental health crisis. But we are leaning into um, the mental health crisis. Uh, we have an amazing team. I have uh, Dr. Fasan, for those who are familiar, he was with uh, Fountain House. That's why I recruited him. I was so happy to get him on my team where he looked at wraparound services for those who were dealing with mental health crises. But we have to destigmatize mental health illnesses. Because when you go to someone and say, I have a mental health illness, now you stigmatize them. We want to move into a space of wellness. And wellness is not only physical wellness, but it's mental wellness as well. And when you start saying we want to create wellness environments, people view it differently than trying to stigmatize and classify people to a certain uh, form of illness. Wellness is wellness. We need to be well. I want to ask you about Rikers Island. Um, when I was U.S. attorney, we commenced, well, we didn't commence, we joined a lawsuit that already existed against the city and the Department of Corrections because of undue violence and excessive use of force. And there was a, a court order and a consent decree and a monitor imposed, and it's only gotten worse. <laughs> and the violence there is even worse. And my successor, Damien Williams, last week sent a letter to the city saying we are considering asking for a receivership and taking authority away from the city with respect to Rikers Island. And you responded, basically, I'm paraphrasing here, I just got here, give me a chance. <laughs> what is it that you think you can do to reverse the 
you know, worsening problem at Rikers. Well, first of all, uh, you should be commended because uh, it was not on the radar of others. And by you compelling us to examine Rikers, it really put us in a place that a, a real blemish on our city for a long time. Rikers did not start getting bad January 1st, 2022. It has been a system of denial. The attitude was, hey, they on Rikers Island, the predominant number of those who are employed there, both civilian and correction officers, are black and brown. A large number of women that are black and brown. And we basically said, ignore it. And so you threw a spotlight on that. The previous administration failed. January come, 1, 2022, what do the I do? The administration before that failed too. And before that, yeah. and before that, and before that. Yeah. So Eric so Adams- what do you got? Right. <laughs> Eric Adams comes on, January 1st, 2022, I come in with Commissioner Molina. Commissioner Molina came from a facility that was, had a special monitor. He got him out of the special monitor because of his changes. So all I'm saying to everyone, give me a chance. <laughs> you know, give me a chance. But, but, but are you able, I know it's only been 100 and something days to articulate a theory whereby you'll be successful when the prior three administrations were not? Yes, yes. Are you gonna, like now? <laughs> you know, I'll never forget someone coming up to me and saying, you know, all of these darn potholes, you know, you can't fix them, what's wrong with you? And, you know, and they, I said, sir, it's January 2nd. <laughs> Come on. We, listen, it's how not, do we have generational problems? You gave a big speech about, I'm, this is not gotcha. Yes. And I'm not going to press you further, but you gave a big speech. You know, it's been 100 days and we've done all these things and it's an FDR moment. So you're a little bit putting yourself in the position of being asked hard questions about concrete policies because you're touting the things you've done in the first 100 days. And yes. So I think it's a reasonable question in the face of increasing really abhorrent violence at Rikers Island, that it just gotten worse. Not your fault, you didn't start it, you've only been here a little while. I would just ask you to, to think quickly about why the U.S. Attorney is wrong on that, on that point. You said something else. Well, 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 yeah. well, you can't leave that out okay. there. Okay, I was letting you off the hook actually. Well, you know, the US, you, you, I don't want to be off the hook. When okay. is want the ball when the game is on the line? I want the ball okay. in my hands. The ball is yours. You know, the, the, the U.S. Attorney, uh, he did an analysis based on historical um, problems in Rikers, and I respect that. I have no problem with what he said. We must convince the people of the city and the U.S. Attorney and the Special Monitor that we're moving in the right direction. And that's what we're going to, going to do. They're gonna lay out exactly what their recommendations are, we're gonna implement them, and we're going to show the reason why. Now look at what happened. We had thousands of correction officers who were not coming to work. We got a thousand. Yeah, so people know there was a huge absenteeism problem right. that got worse and worse and worse. And we got a thousand returned. We just did the, the violence on violence in Rikers. We just did a, a mass uh, inspections of cells. Do you know we recovered over a thousand shanks? Think about that. 
It's <laughs> a lot of shanks. Right, right. We moved from, we've moved from solitary confi confinement. We're now moving into a punitive segregation that is not as abusive and, and, and intrusive. You go to see our educational program where young people are getting real skills so they won't be part of the revolving door. So we are doing things on the ground in Rikers Island, and that is how we're going to get out of this mess. But we're also going to stop the feeder. No one wants to talk about the feeder that places people on Rikers Island. And that's what I'm talking about. Let's stop the feeder that put people on Rikers Island. I know your team wants to get you going, but I got a couple, a couple <laughs> of final things. I'm sorry, because we, you said it's gonna be hard for people to hate me because we are listening in your speech today. Do you, do you worry about being hated? And then the famous question that arises is, would you rather be loved or feared? I, I would rather be respected. I would rather be respected. And a lot of my naysayers, they did something that's revolutionary. They started to read. They started to say, let me stop yelling at him. Let me read his blueprint to end gun violence. And you know what they saw? They saw one paragraph on giving discretion to judges. And they started to read these other paragraphs, invested in foster care children, crisis management, dyslexia screening, homeless youth, some employment. They said, wait a minute, this guy is saying what we're saying. We're not listening to each other anymore. All we're doing is yelling at each other. Let's just read. Let's just talk. Let's just figure out how do we live together. I think respect is a good way of thinking about it. This is not a gotcha question, but if I don't ask the question, Still good. I'll be questioned, right? So we can be very quick about it. Yes. And, then, and then one more thing, and we'll let you go. <laughs> when your tax returns are available, <laughs> I mean, I, how can I not ask the question? When your tax returns, I know you got an extension, you had COVID, I'm glad you've recovered, you look great. When your tax returns are filed, Will you disclose them to the public like most yes. mayors have done? This, but, Is that a yes? Yes, yes, okay, yes, great. yes. But here's, here's you don't have to make, If you don't want to make a comment, you don't have to. No, I want to make I a comment. I want the yes. I don't like things stuff, stuff out there. Here's, here's what I was saying uh, to the arrogance of the reporter that asked the question and how he asked it. Someone needs to watch how he asked the question. Right. And the city... Did I ask it arrogantly? No, you didn't. Okay, good. You were polite. All right. The city gave clear rules. This is what we expect of our elected officials to show that they are transparent. They gave us the rules. My COIB report, my filings, they told us what we have to do. I comply every year, every year. So when you arrogantly come to me, because you're not gonna disrespect me, and ask a question like I gotta answer you yes, yes or no, do you know what you're gonna get? You're gonna get a no. Yeah. I don't have a problem. To, you want I want me to, to teach that reporter how to ask the question properly? Yes, you should. Okay. I pay a lot of taxes, and New York is going to see how much I pay. So do I. Good. So I'm glad. We don't have to belabor <laughs> yes. the point. La last thing I'm going to ask you, because your people are getting really annoyed, I think. <laughs> so the last three mayors yes. of the city of New York, whatever you think of them, they all had one thing in common. Rudy Giuliani, Michael Bloomberg... Bill de Blasio, they all ran for president. <laughs> and I think, 
They were like the worst presidential candidates ever. Like, they, they sucked so bad. And Democrat, Republican, Bloomberg, whatever party he was from, I think they got a total in three elections, like nine votes. <laughs> so my final question to you, sir, on this, on this important weighty day, is it in the city charter that you must run for president? <laughs> and are you competitive enough that you want to get like 11 votes? <laughs> what does the future hold for you with respect to national politics oh, and the presidency? Let me, let me, and I know you will dodge it, but I had to ask that uh, question. Uh, no dodging. Uh, you can run America from New York. <laughs> <laughs> you were prepared for that. You were prepared for that. Is that all you want to say? You want to? Yes. Just, just, That's New it. York. New York. Listen, this place. I don't think New York is really appreciate what we mean uh, to the entire globe. The way goes New York goes America. The way goes America goes yeah. the globe. And what we do here impacts our entire country. You so, can run America from New York. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> to close, to close, I just want to say the thing that I said to you when I met you some months ago when you were running at 11.30 at night, walking down the street on Park <laughs> Avenue. We didn't even get to talk about the nightlife stuff. Uh, maybe next time. And I, you know, we, we may ag agree a lot, we may disagree from time to time. I'm just a citizen who cares about the city of New York. I want you to succeed. Yes. I do agree with you that the city is the greatest, not just in America, but on Earth. Um, it's a really important place. It's a really special place. I feel so much gratitude that I get to be a part of the city and got to have a job in the public, in public service in the city. I really wish you luck. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Thank I you. hope you have a great rest of your term. Like many of you, I've been really concerned about the growing effort to ban books in our public schools and our libraries, and it's not just because I recently became an author. According to the American Library Association, or the ALA, in 2021, a total of 729 books were challenged, meaning a person or a group attempted to ban those titles from public libraries, schools, and universities. That's the highest number of attempted book bans since the ALA began tracking them 20 years ago. This past winter, as you might remember, it felt like every week we heard news of a different book being challenged or banned. Mouse, Art Spiegelman's graphic novel about the Holocaust, The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, and Gender Queer by Maya Kobabe, just to name a few. According to the ALA, quote, most targeted books were by or about black or LGBTQIA plus persons, end quote. But as we've seen across the country in recent years, threats to our democratic values have been met with inspiring and often creative responses. 
And I want to end the show this week by highlighting one that is, for me, close to home. And it's pretty awesome. The Brooklyn Public Library, or BPL, announced this week that it is letting anyone in the U.S. aged 13 to 21 apply for a digital library card. The initiative, which is called Books Unbanned, good name, is specifically designed to fight back against what BPL calls the increasingly coordinated and effective effort to remove books tackling a wide range of topics from library shelves. In addition, the library has made a group of ebooks and audiobooks that are frequently banned or challenged always available to library cardholders. That means, for example, if you're a teenager in McMinn County, Tennessee, where the local school board has voted to ban Mouse from the 8th grade curriculum, you can access the book for free online. If you're interested in getting a BPL digital library card, you can apply by emailing booksunbanned at bklynlibrary.org. You can also head to the library's website, which is www.bklynlibrary.org. And thank you to the Brooklyn Public Library for fighting back against censorship, or in their words, adding their voice to those fighting for the rights of teens nationwide to read what they like, discover themselves, and form their own opinions. Every young person should have that right. And in a democracy, it's up to each of us to protect it. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Eric Adams. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tadashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Sean Walsh, and Namita Shah. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.